for these uh, next sort of 20, 25 minutes or so, uh, I'm going to talk about the sensitive issue of money, which given the time of year, uh, start of December and Christmas is looming, is either a really sensible thing to do and a good idea, or else it's a really bad idea and a stupid thing to do, uh, and you can decide. But it's true that money makes the world go round. And we literally cannot live without money. We, we have it. We need it. We want it. We owe it. We make it. It's a core part of our, our lives. It, it unites us. It divides us. It frustrates us. It drives us. It consumes us. It worries us. Uh, bottom line, it matters. And those who, who say that money doesn't matter are, are few and far between. And I think it's fair to say that the sort of world we live in, the, the world at large, and certainly Western society, would agree that there is this, this general widespread and deep desire to have money, to have more money. A little more? We'd all love a little more. Or maybe even if we're honest, we'd all love a lot more. Uh, this week's news coverage and hype regarding the, uh, the American lottery has been fascinating. Does anyone know how much the, the, the jackpot reached this week in the U.S.? Sorry? Yes. Half a billion dollar jackpot on Wednesday. And there was a lot of news coverage about it. At least I, I saw a lot and read a lot about it. And it kind of illustrates or illustrated the, the deep and intense and desperate longing to, to have more money. The odds of hitting the exact six numbers needed to win that amount were one in 175 million, which are pretty prohibitive odds. And apparently, even though those odds were so prohibitive, literally hundreds of thousands of people joined lengthy queues outside convenience stores and even were prepared to jump on a plane and fly between states in order to buy a ticket. Let me just read you this comment. This is from one paper. The Oregon Lottery Office in Salem said a woman in Oakland called to say that she had booked a flight to Portland just to get a ticket because Powerball isn't available in her state. Another person from Nevada called for the same reason. I guess $500 million dollars makes people nutty, said one lottery spokesman. There were two people who won that lottery, by the way. It was shared between two, quarter of a billion dollars each. Now, I know that's an extreme example, a very extreme example, but yet this, this intense longing and desire to have more money, more than we could ever spend is intense. And many within our culture, I don't think, would argue with the idea that money has a significant influence in people's lives. Having it and keeping it and accumulating it and spending it is powerfully appealing today. And as Christians, we, we know that the Bible has so much to say and teach about money. And most of it's very countercultural and kind of flies in the face of, of many ideas that our culture has about money. And it's not that the Bible or God are anti-money. 
God doesn't deny the need for it. And the value of earning it doesn't say we shouldn't possess it. But God's word definitely teaches and stresses an entirely alternative mindset and approach to money than the culture in which we live. And that teaching includes a number of warnings in Scripture about our attitude to money. Let me just show you three different biblical texts which in themselves highlight uh, an alternative perspective. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And then those, those famous words, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Hebrews, keep your lives free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. Now, I know that that even in themselves, those are massive statements, and, and you could spend a lot of time on those three verses alone. But this evening, I do want us to return to a series that we started back in October called Dying to Serve. And it's a series that's based on the Apostle Paul's second letter to the Christians in the church in Corinth. And I actually want to think about tonight the role that money plays in Christian service. And how we use money to serve others. And how we use money to express our faith in a very tangible way. And in week now, if you're visiting or if you weren't here for the first two in these, this series or even if you've forgotten, let me just quickly remind you what we've looked at so far. In week one, which is right back on the 7th of October, we thought about our Christian service as conduits of comfort, that as Christians we worship and we serve the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our troubles. Why? so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. And so one of our acts of service to one another is to be conduits of comfort, to pass it on, to pay it forward, that God does not comfort us to be comfortable, but to make us comforters. Second week then, 21st of October, we thought about our service as ministers of reconciliation. And we reflect on this idea that we have been reconciled to God as Christians. That's what this is all about. But having been reconciled to God, having become friends of God, God then gives us the ministry of reconciliation. And God actually invites us to become Christ's ambassadors. We're to represent Christ in this world. And therefore, we are to speak to our friends and our neighbors and our families and our community and to the world at large about the need to become reconciled to God. And so that is a key act of Christian service, to be a minister of reconciliation. So conduit of comfort, minister of reconciliation. Tonight, I want to look at this one that we are to be models of generosity. And I'd like us to use the example of a group of believers in a place called Macedonia or in an area of Macedonia 
to agitate our thinking. So if you have a Bible, please uh, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. It's page 1162. And, and we will take time to read the first nine verses of this chapter. And if you don't mind, we'll, we'll stand for the public reading of God's word. So 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and we'll start at verse 1. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected. But they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Please take a seat. Let me, uh, let me ask you a question. How does our culture encourage a lifestyle where money becomes an idol? Okay. How does our culture encourage a lifestyle where money becomes an idol? Turn around and have a chat to the person beside you about that for two seconds, okay? I'm not going to ask any for any feedback, so don't worry. But just, just have a chat with the person beside you and answer that question. Okay. No, that didn't give you very long. But the thing about an idol, or what, what is an idol? An idol is an object of worship. And, and within our society, and you may have discussed, money has become an object of worship, an object of affection. It can be the thing that we spend most or a lot of our time pursuing and talking about. 
And for many in today's world, loving, pursuing, and talk about, uh, talking about money is the air that they breathe. And yet, from a, a Christian biblical perspective, it, it's that very attitude where money becomes an object of worship and affection that creates such a problem. Because whenever money occupies that kind of position in our lives, it begins to take over. And it kind of begins to master us. And it leads to untold restlessness and anxiety and this feeling of being constantly discontent. And it's so easy to give money and possessions the power to make us feel secure and successful and valuable. That money can become the kind of source of hope and peace. Or on the flip side, we we can buy into this mindset that the lack of money and the lack of possessions can leave us feeling weak and worthless and insignificant compared to others. And so the question is, how, how do you guard your heart with regard to your attitude towards money? How do you embrace a sort of biblical mindset when it comes to this issue? How do you protect yourself from getting sucked in and from allowing our culture to squeeze us into its mold? And this is really hard. And I know lots of people wrestle with this constantly. And what I want to suggest is that extreme generosity is one practice worth pursuing. That becoming someone who gives generously to others is one way of addressing this. Not the only way, one way. We've we've probably all come across the idea of like extreme sport and the increasing popularity of extreme adventures. But what I really want to talk about tonight and advocate is the adventure of extreme giving. Okay, So that's a new one to add to the list. And it's actually described here in 2 Corinthians 8. For me, this is a very powerful description of extreme giving. These people had become aware of a genuine need. Paul had brought it to their attention that certain people and people who were very different from them, now they were other believers, but they were very different from them. They were in real dire straits. And in response, it says that these Macedonian believers opened their hearts and their wallets and their purses in their hands, and they gave. They gave generously. They gave cheerfully, as it says in the next chapter. They gave willingly. And whenever we live in a world where we're surrounded by people in need, I mean, there are countless, numerous opportunities to respond and give. But do we? And how do we decide what to give to? What's genuine? What's not genuine? Well, let's take a closer look at at these Christians in order to discover more about what prompted them and motivated them. And one of the the things you confront here is that we're not talking about extreme amounts. This is not about the size of our giving. What we're talking about is this idea of extreme generosity, that it is about heart, that, that it is about attitude, that it is about giving irrespective of your circumstances. And this is the bit here in, in this particular text that I find particularly challenging. Take a look at verse 2. Because what we read here is that in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Now, so much about that verse makes little sense. In the midst of a very 
severe trial, they were generous. Now, I don't know about you, but whenever I'm going through the mill, whenever I'm up against it, whenever I have enough issues of my own to deal with and address, I don't tend to be very others-focused. In fact, I become pretty oblivious to the needs of those around me because I'm so consumed by my own. These people seem to be different. They were wrestling with, they were struggling with a very severe trial. They were stretched to the limit. They were tested, and yet, somehow they didn't ignore or lose sight of the needs of other people around them. They didn't delay responding in order to sort out their own issues. They simply gave. And they gave generously. The other thing that strikes you about this verse is the apparent oxymoron. Joyful poverty. How can you be overflowing with joy and yet experience extreme poverty at the same time? Those two experiences jar in our culture. People in extreme poverty surely can't have overflowing joy. And yet there are some people here, and you've visited other parts of the world, particularly the developing world, and you've encountered people who have got next to nothing and yet somehow have a deep abiding joy. But that is not our culture's experience. It kind of defies logic. Paul here comes across a group of believers who were content at a very deep level, regardless of the fact that they had next to nothing. And they clearly struggled to meet their basic needs. That's what this phrase, extreme poverty here, means. And therefore, in light of those two discoveries that they had severe trials to deal with, and that they were living in extreme poverty, that final phrase of that verse is really quite startling. That they welled up in rich generosity. If you put that into an equation, and I I came across it during the week, it makes for strange mathematics. Abundant joy plus extreme poverty equals a wealth of generosity. And the point is this. It's not about how much or how little we have. It's not about the volume of our gift. Even I know this is a big statement. Even our circumstances are somewhat irrelevant. The issue is, are we generous? Are we known as people who, who display extreme generosity? Do we serve others as we give? But what exactly does rich generosity look like? What does it actually mean and evolve? Well, well, let's read on here or re-read on. Because although it starts at what you might describe as a reasonably easy level, you quickly realize that that the stakes are high and the challenges are radical. Take a look at verse 3. It says there, they gave as much as they were able. That's how it starts. And and you think to yourself, well, that's fair enough. That, That sounds accessible for me. That sounds doable for me. I know it does. But then you read on and discover more. Because then we enter into the realms of what appears to be sacrificial giving. Verse 3 continues, they gave even beyond their ability. Now, just allow that to kind of 
filter through for a moment because I kind of want to react to that at one level. Give as you're able, but give beyond your ability. That sounds to me that we're not talking about giving up a few luxuries, a few indulgences in order to release some cash and funds. We're actually talking about denial. Am I prepared to deny myself in order to give to others? Goes even further. Look at verse 4. Because these people, it turns out, were incredibly proactive. They didn't need to be prompted. They didn't need to be provoked. They didn't need to be challenged to give. It says in verse 4, they pleaded. They urgently pleaded for the chance to give. They longed to actually share in this act of service. It was something they wanted to do. They couldn't wait to do. And also, as you read on, it was not about meeting other people's expectations. Sometimes our motive, I'll be honest, sometimes my motive for giving is because I'm expected to give. I'm expected to give a certain amount, a certain percentage. Well, according to verse 5, these believers went beyond our expectations. So the rich rich generosity that we're called to practice according to these verses is about giving what you're able to give and then some and then some more. It's about actively looking for and grabbing opportunities to give and it's about defying people's expectations of you regarding giving. That's massive. Incredibly challenging. But as you dig a little deeper, you actually begin to unearth some reasons for this rich generosity. And you come to three insights in these verses that I think are worth considering. That kind of help us get a window into why they were able to give what they were able to give and then beyond their ability. Look at the second half of verse 5. They went beyond our expectations, having given themselves, first of all, to the Lord. And that's the critical bit. Because what we're dealing with here, or rather who we're dealing with here, are fully committed Christians who have surrendered their entire lives and every aspect of their lives, including their attitude towards money and possessions, over to God. These are Christians who had said, listen, God, you can have access to all areas of my life, including my money and my attitude to it. You can be Lord of every area and every dimension. And so they gave themselves first to the Lord, and out of that flowed rich generosity. The second insight in these verses is the, and I'm not sure if you picked this up, but this intimate connection between grace and generosity. The concept of of grace comes up a number of times in those verses. Right up front, look at verse 1 again. Paul refers to the grace that God has given to the Macedonian churches. And then he goes on to talk about giving as an act of grace. And he longs for them to excel in the grace of giving. And the word that lies at the heart of the grace of God is the word give. To say that God is gracious according to one writer, is to say that God is an irrepressible giver. In other words, God gives what we don't deserve. We know that. That is grace. God gives us what we don't deserve, and he keeps giving, and he keeps giving generously, and he keeps giving freely. And the Macedonian believers were on the receiving end of this amazing grace. A God who just kept giving to them. And so are we. 
But the point is that our giving and our generosity should then flow from an awareness of God's grace. And from a desire to extend this gracious generosity to others. You see, the same kind of grace that characterizes the heart of God should at some level characterize ours. And whenever we are generous, whenever we are extremely generous to others, it's an unmistakable sign of God's grace in our lives. That we have embraced it, this grace, this irrepressible giving that we have received of God, that we have embraced that, and then we're letting that flow out to others in what we give. And the third insight regarding rich generosity is the example of Jesus. Many of us uh, love to read or, or often read or watch sort of rags to riches stories. You know, you're fascinated and taken by people who start out with very little and then end up with quite a lot. But the example of Jesus is, is very different. It's a riches to rags story. Look at verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. It is Christmas, almost. We're into Advent season. And we are going to take time to reflect on the fact that Jesus possessed all the riches of heaven. The splendor of glory, the worship of angels, power far beyond our imagination, And yet, he voluntarily left it all to be born in a filthy environment, raised by two very ordinary people in an obscure village, scraped out a living in his dad's business, spent time as an itinerant 